If you would, would you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20? We continue our kind of our short um, series. It is an Advent series, a kind of an interesting Advent series in the sense that um, we're focusing not necessarily on the birth of the Lord Jesus, but we're focusing on the Lord Jesus himself and particularly his role as prophet, priest, and king, his role as mediator. And then as prophet, priest, and king, last week we looked at just in general, his role as mediator this week, we will uh, today, we're looking at Jesus as prophet. And as we, as we do that, it's going to seem that, um, <clears throat> well, let me just put it this way. As we talk about Jesus as prophet, my emphasis this morning is not necessarily on what he does as a prophet, but what he wants us to see and his message as the prophet. What does he tell us is God's will for us as the prophet. So keep that in the back of your mind as we walk through this text together. Next week, Brandon will be uh, preaching on Jesus as the priest, and the following week I'll be back with Jesus as king. So let's turn to John chapter 20, verses 19 to 31. And if you're able and willing, let's stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews... Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This is the Word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, would you now take your Word, meet it with your Spirit in our hearts, and mold us and make us into the men, women, and children that you've called us to be. Oh, Lord God, would you exalt Jesus' name in our midst, for it is Him who we need. May we run to Him, and may we find life, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And we often think of people who do great things. Um, we often think of them of, of maybe of being afraid of nothing. You know, they, we think of them as people who have great confidence 
And maybe they're extraordinary in their talents or in their gifts or in their abilities. And maybe even they're extraordinary. They're those types of people that have the really strong personalities. And when people see them, they just want to follow them. You know people like that, right? And yet, when we look at the disciples, this group of men that our Lord used and chose to use to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, we cannot but be struck with the ordinariness, if I might say that, of them. They were just very ordinary. You've got a zealot, a tax collector, fisherman. You've got one who often seems to speak or do before he thinks, to one who desires not to think or to do before he actually sees. Ordinary common men. In fact, we could say that they were a lot like us. Just ordinary people. In fact, they were ordinary people even in the eyes of others. The scribes and the Pharisees and the rulers, when they had gathered in Jerusalem and they heard Peter and John speak, what they realized is that they were awesome. They were the best men they've... No, that's not what it says, does it? It says they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary people. And yet the Scripture also says that they were amazed by them. They were amazed by them. Why were they amazed? Well, we're told in the Scriptures they were amazed... And they marveled at the boldness and the courage of these ordinary men, Peter and John. And they took note that these men, that they'd been to conferences and to schools and to motivational speak. Nope. That they took note that these men had been with Jesus. These men had been with Jesus. How is it that these ordinary common men can be used in such an extraordinary way? The answer to that is because of their extraordinary Lord. That's the answer. These men spoke because Jesus had spoken. And so we look this morning to Jesus as prophet, as the one who has revealed to us the whole will of God for our salvation and for our edification. And again, it may seem like an interesting passage to pick for this, but it's here that we see so clearly that the Lord Jesus is revealed to be who He said He is, the living Christ, the Messiah. And John says in the very purpose of this gospel, what is the will of God? For us, but it is our salvation. For in the very purpose of John's gospel, he says that by believing in him, that you may have life in his name. John had said, or Jesus had said back in John chapter 6, he said, This is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. That we believe in the Lord Jesus. My hope is is that we do that this morning. Whether you already know Him, that you would see Him, and that you would trust Him all the more. And that if you do not know Him already, that today would be the day 
that the scales would fall from your eyes and you with Thomas might say, oh, my Lord and my God. That's my hope for this morning. In our text, we see Jesus reveal himself to the disciples right after the resurrection. And he moves his disciples from fear to peace and then even beyond peace. And then he moves his disciples, or at least one disciple, from doubt to belief. So let's look at those two simple things. Let's look first from fear to peace. And the scripture tells us, again, Brandon mentioned this with the children a few moments ago, that it was evening on that day. What is that day he's speaking of? That day was the first day of the week. It was the Lord's day. And the doors were shut. The disciples were there and they were all huddled in there. Why were they there? They were there for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and he stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. Jesus didn't wait long to reveal himself alive to his disciples. He didn't keep his disciples in suspense, in fear, and in grief. And, and we, we learn, even here, we learn that the infallible proof, the infallible proof of the resurrection of Christ is that he showed himself alive. Let me say that again. That may seem pretty simple. But the infallible proof of the resurrection of Christ is that he showed himself alive. Not just to one, not just to three, not just to twelve, but to many. He showed himself alive. Acts chapter 1 says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs. What an encouragement to his disciples. And, and, and notice how gentle, how caring, how patient the Lord Jesus is with those that belong to him. How caring is the shepherd of his sheep that the very evening of his resurrection he showed himself to them. He didn't wait. And John reminds us again, as I mentioned a moment ago, this is the first day of the week, and we see this throughout the New Testament. There's this emphasis over and over and over again on this day, the first day of the week. Why? Well, the disciples gathered for the teaching of the Word, the breaking of the bread together on that first day of the week, a day that John in Revelation calls the Lord's Day. What we have here in this text is the first Christian assembly. It's not a big one. It's not a big one. It's just a few of the disciples. A few disciples, but they've met with the risen Lord Jesus. First Christian assembly. But the disciples, again, before Jesus came, they were hunkered behind those closed doors, weren't they? They were afraid of the Jews and what they might do to them. And, and so we do. We see the fear there. We see the fear and we're in and often that's the first thing that we pick out about this passage is the fear of them, you know, hiding behind closed doors. We don't, ha we don't have a lot of patience with the disciples. The Lord Jesus did, but we don't. But do we not also have a picture of faith and, and a little bit of trust? And you say, well, where do you see that? Well, the disciples, maybe, maybe they were a little bit less courageous than maybe we think they ought to have been. It may have been a little bit of a show of the weakness of their faith, hiding. And yet at the same time, they didn't completely give way to their fear. How do we know that? Because it would have been a lot easier for them. If they really wanted to hide, for them to split up and not meet together. 
and not associate with one another. It had been easier for them to split up, to go their own way, to bury themselves alone or with their family and to hide from danger, but they didn't. They didn't scatter. They didn't scatter for that purpose, but in fact, they came together. They assembled together. You know, it's, it is our tendency, I think, in our flesh that when we're frightened, when we're hurting, when we're angry, we want to kind of turn into ourselves a little bit, don't we? Because we don't want anybody else to know that we're weak or that we're afraid or that we're hurting. We don't want them to see that part about us. And yet, it's with God's people that we actually find comfort. And it's with God's people where it is where Jesus actually meets us, where we meet our Christ. Christ appears to his disciples while they're assembled together. And again, it's our tendency to scatter, which often leads to error, which often leads to our own doubt and our own fear, because think about it. When we're already afraid, when we're already scared, when we're already hurt, when we're already angry, we go off by ourselves. And when we go off by ourselves, what are we much more apt to do? Do we preach the gospel to ourselves when we go off by ourselves? No. You've been there. Don't tell me you haven't because I've been there. We go off by ourselves and we begin to do what? We begin to listen to ourselves. We begin to listen to our flesh. These are all the reasons why I'm justified in my fear. These are all the reasons why I'm justified in my anger. These are all the reasons why I should be upset at so-and-so. And we begin to just listen to our flesh over and over again. We do not need to listen to ourselves. What we need, we need to hear the gospel of Jesus preached to us. Not just from somebody from the pulpit, but from our brothers and sisters in Christ who will look at us and say, this is what the Word says. This is what God promises you. Don't listen to your flesh, but listen to the Word of God. It's our tendency to scatter that often leads to error. John Calvin said of this, he said, In this manner, we ought to struggle against this weakness of our flesh and not to indulge fear, which tempts us, and listen to the way that he says it, to apostasy, to turning away from the faith and not grasping it, not holding on to it, but turning away from it. Even in, even in, and especially in, I should say, difficult times, we're not to forsake the assembling together as is the habit of some. The author of Hebrews tells us this. He encourages us in this way. But to encourage one another all the more. I mean, think about it. There's a reason why we are called sheep. A sheep isn't safe off by himself. A sheep is safe when he's in the fold. Not when he's scattered. I don't know if y'all have ever seen this before. I don't really have time to, to, to mention this, but I'm going to anyways because it's so cute. Have you ever seen, if you've ever been on, um, and you young people are going to make fun of me, the internet, you still call it the internet, right? On the internet, and you're watching the videos, and there's that video of a sheep. And they spend all this time pulling this sheep out of this ditch. And they finally get the sheep out of the ditch. They put the sheep up here, and it takes off running. It jumps right back into the ditch and stuck. Brothers and sisters, that's often us, isn't it? It's often us. We need a shepherd and we need other sheep. The assembling together, not scattered, because it's here, it's here assembled that Christ came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. And, and John notes to us that this is a miracle. He makes this emphasis 
The doors were shut, but Christ came and stood in their midst. Can you imagine the scene? You're all in this room together. You're afraid of the Jews and the rulers, so you're all huddled together. The door's shut and it's locked. Nobody can get in. And then all of a sudden, somebody goes, Shalom Aleichem. How did he get in here? And then they look up, and who is it? It's the risen Christ. It's the risen Christ right in their midst. It is the one who says, peace to you. But not only does he say peace to you, it is this whole reality that peace is standing in our midst. Peace is here. This is what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? Peace. Peace is here. He's in, the, he's in our midst. So yes, it is. You, you need not fear. You need not dismay. You need not grieve. Why? Because I'm here. I'm with you. So, as another meaning for peace be with you, be happy, be prosperous. Because Jesus is here. And he repeats that phrase again in verse 21, just a few verses more, as he commissions the disciples. Uh, So before the disciples were sent out to minister in the name of Christ, to share that peace of Christ, they must first know the peace of Christ themselves. That makes sense, doesn't it? If we want to minister the gospel of Christ, we must understand the gospel. We need to have experienced the gospel as we then go out and share it with others. We're to know the joy and the peace of Christ ourselves. I mean, when Jesus said this the first time to the disciples here in the room, they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. There was great joy. There should have been. There's great peace. And those are, those are characteristics of those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that life is always rosy all the time. You know that. I know that. But a characteristic of knowing the Lord Jesus is joy and peace in Him. And so Jesus is leading them from this fear to peace, from fear to joy. But He doesn't stop there either because He moves them on even to fear to confidence. He says, as a father has sent me, so also I send you. you. You will go, you will proclaim the gospel of Christ, and you will do so not on an authority that is your own, but on my authority, on the authority of Christ Jesus. And, and if you've ever watched a relay re, uh, race, Brandon several weeks ago, maybe months ago, whatever it was, had given the children's sermon, and he used this illustration of passing the baton. And we see the same thing here of the Lord Jesus passing the baton, as it were, to His disciples to take the message of the gospel to a waiting and watching world. Even as God sent Christ, so also Christ sends His disciples. This this is John's version of the Great Commission. There's no other version of it, but here in John, this is his version of the Great Commission. We see this in all four of uh, of, of the Gospels. The most familiar, of course, being Matthew chapter 28. But we see it in some form in all four of the Gospels. This is it here for John. And and the commission, the commission belongs to the disciples, but it also belongs to the entire church. Find that in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and of course, again, Matthew chapter 28. We have a mission to fulfill that's given to us by God to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Father sent Christ. Christ sends His disciples. And, And it's interesting, too, Particularly as we, if you were to study the book of John, one of the things that you would notice is certain themes that John loves to talk about. And one of the themes that John loves to talk about is this mission of going into the world. I mean, 
he, he says it in several different ways. The true light, he says, which, which um, coming into the world. Then he says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Light has come into the world. For judgment, I've come into the world. The one whom the Father has set apart as his very own and sent into the world over and over again. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. I have come into the world as light and on and on and on and on into the world. Why am I emphasizing that this morning? Because just as Jesus has sent into the world, we too... As ministers of the gospel, we are also sent into this world. As much as sometimes we don't like the world around us, we've been given the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to take to that world. It's a world in need, and it's a world that's lost. And as your pastor, I know it's easy for us sometimes, I think, to think, and it's easy for me to think this way. And in a lot of ways, it's easier for me to share the gospel than it is for you. Let me say that again. In a lot of ways, it's easier for me to share the gospel than it is for you. Why? Well, one, I get to do it every Sunday. And I get to stand up here and I get to do it with you. And everybody who knows I'm a pastor expects me to do that. So they already expect it. It's a lot easier for me. And it's my role. It's my vocation. For you, it's not your vocation. So I, I, I get it. Sometimes it's easier for me to do that than it is for you. And I do love to do it. I love, I love to preach the gospel. I love to preach it to you. I love to preach it even to those that do not know the gospel. But sometimes, whether it's you or whether it's me, sometimes we ask those questions, isn't it? Like, well, what about those who, who won't come to here? Like, they won't come here. Then we've got to go to them, don't we? What about those to whom we must go? And what about those that we really don't even want to go to? I mean, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Sometimes we have our own Ninevehs. I don't want to go there. I don't want to share the gospel with that person because, well, that person, I like not liking that person. And if that person comes to know Christ, then that, we're almost like Jonah, aren't we? Then that person's going to be saved and then I got to love them. And Jesus is going to forgive them of all of their sin. That should be good news, shouldn't it? But what about those we must learn to love? Do we go? Do we have a heart for them? Well, as the church of the Lord Jesus, we are sent into the world making disciples of all men, teaching them to obey everything that He's commanded. And yes, yeah, so what a, that's a daunting task, isn't it? It's a daunting task. Many of us would rather hide ourselves and to do that. Where do we get the strength? Well, we get it from the Holy Spirit. The power of the mini- power for ministry comes from the giving of the Holy Spirit. Peace be with you. As my Father sent me, so I send you. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, and Jesus breathes this on them, there is no power in ministry. What the disciples did, what we do, got to be done not in our own work, not in our own power, not in our own strength, not in our own authority, but by the power of Christ in us, by the power of the Spirit moving us in it. Now, Jesus goes on to say this difficult passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it this morning, but he says, if you forgive the sins of many, their sins have been forgiven them. Uh, if you retain the sins of any, they, they've been retained. So 
we look at that and we stumble over that a little bit. Well, do the apostles, do the disciples have the, for, the power to forgive sin? The answer to that is no. This has got to be understood in the same context of the giving of the keys of the kingdom um, that's mentioned in Matthew chapter 16. It's got to be understood in the context of the whole of the scriptures. And many abuses have ha- uh, arisen from an in- uh, improper understanding of this particular text because only God has authority to forgive and remit sin. If you'll remember, that's one of the things that the scribes said of Jesus. Who is this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone, they said. They understand that only, understood that only God can do that. But that's the thing, isn't it? Jesus had the right and authority to forgive sin. Because why? Because he's God. Because he is God. The disciples understood it. Peter Peter even says all the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Not through the name of any other, but only through the name of Christ. Paul says it this way in Acts chapter 13. Through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That's the message. That's our message. The forgiveness of sin through Jesus Christ. John Stott says it this way. He says the apostles understood that the authority... The risen Lord had given to them was the authority of a preacher and not that of a priest. We don't have that kind of authority. Jesus is our great high priest, but we do have the authority to point people to him and to proclaim the forgiveness of sin in Christ Jesus. So Jesus leads them not only from fear to peace, not only from fear to joy, but fear to even confidence or boldness. But he also leads particularly uh, Thomas, from doubt to belief. There was one, um, as Brandon mentioned, that that wasn't with them when Jesus first appeared to them. And so he didn't receive the favor of the Lord that had been granted to them while they were assembled. And again, his name was Thomas, a familiar person in the Scriptures, I think, for many of us. He was one of the twelve. Uh, He was called Didymus. What in the world does Didymus mean? Well, we read from our text, it simply means the twin or the double. So he had a twin. He was a twin. But he wasn't there when the Lord appeared the first time. And so the others went running to him and said, Thomas, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But what does he say? He says, ah, unless I see his hands, unless I see the imprint of the nails and and put my finger there and put my hand there, I, I will not. I will never believe, he says. And we are often hard on poor Thomas, aren't we? I mean, Thomas, the disciples told you they saw him, and yet you do not and you did not believe. We call him Doubting Thomas, and that's accurate because even Jesus says of him, do not be unbelieving, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So it's accurate, but I want you to notice something. What is it that Thomas actually asks to do? You ever thought about this? What what Thomas asked to do is the very thing that Jesus had already shown the other disciples. Have you ever noticed that? Thomas isn't that much different than any of the other disciples. He just wasn't there the first time. And Jesus had already shown the other disciples. But Thomas didn't get to see it like they did. And yet we're still pretty hard on poor old Thomas. Look back to verse 20. When he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. That's him talking to the other disciples. And so they rejoiced because they saw the Lord. Thomas had missed out on the very thing that he wanted to see. And yet still, yet still, Jesus is so patient 
and so gentle. And I think here, we, 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 we do see here too, I think, there's nothing necessarily wrong with desiring evidence. Um, and not necessarily desiring proof, but desiring evidence. I, I, I think we could say desiring proof as well. I mean, because after all, the, the Scripture, we're taught in the Scripture that the resurrection of Christ is proof positive that He is who He says He is. And Him showing Himself alive is proof positive that He rose from the dead. That would make sense. There's nothing wrong necessarily then with desiring evidence, but it's having the evidence and then rejecting it that is damnable. That's the danger. And so Jesus having after already showing himself to the others and showing him his hands and showed him his side. And now he does the same with Thomas. And, and notice again where they are. The Scripture says, after eight days. Well, Brandon had said a few minutes ago that, that they met that first time as the Lord's Day, and then a week later they met on the Lord's Day. And so here we are, but now it says eight days. How can... Brandon's exactly correct. It's the way that they counted they counted not only, like if it was today, I'm counting till next Sunday. Uh, what we would usually do is we'd count Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But the way that they would count is Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Eight days in according to their, the way that they were counting. So it is, it's the very next Sunday. So it is, again, the Lord's Day. And I hope you're getting the kind of the importance of the Lord's Day here to John. And it's here that Christ appears again. And Jesus comes in the very same way that He'd come before, and He says the same thing. Peace be with you. And, and again, just the presence of Christ brings peace. He is our peace, and He brings with Him peace. That's part of the Gospel story. It's part of what we proclaim as we go into the world and and, and proclaim the peace of Christ. But Jesus says to Thomas, He says, reach here and see my hands. He says, reach here, put your hand in my side. Don't disbelieve, but, but believe. And again, we see the patience of the Lord Jesus, don't we? With our wavering faith. Stop doubting, Thomas. Stop doubting. Believe. Here's the evidence. Here's the proof. Believe. And, and notice the explicitness of how Jesus answers Thomas's request. Thomas says, unless I see, and Jesus says, look at my hands. Thomas says, and put my finger, and Jesus says, reach your finger here. Thomas says, and put my hand, and Jesus says, put it into my side. Thomas says, I will never believe, and Jesus says, don't disbelieve, but believe. Every single one of them specific. He specifically addresses Thomas's issues. And again, not to overquote Calvin, but he thinks that Thomas's insistence here to see the wounds and to touch them, even after beholding Christ, says something about Thomas's pride and his obstinacy. Well, I think we could say that about all the disciples, and not just Thomas. And I'm not sure that it does. It, it very well might. But it's not how Jesus treats him. Jesus doesn't treat him like he's prideful and he's obstinate. Again, he's so ever patient with his sheep. A bruised reed he will not break. What does Jesus do? Jesus encourages Thomas' faith. He does not stifle it. 
We are not asked to believe in a Christ for whom there is no evidence. He doesn't ask us to do that. It's not a faith that's based on the imagination of men, but it's a faith based on the reality of the Lord Jesus rooted in history. And when we see Christ for who He is, we have no other response than that of Thomas. A wonderful response, isn't it? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. In one sense, this this could be said to be the climax of John's gospel. And we read the purpose in verse 31, and I'll get to that in just a few moments before we close, but uh, where, where John says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in His name. We often think that's the, the climax because that's the purpose of the book, and that's certainly fine to do that. But this, in some way, really is a, a climax where Thomas comes and he sees the Lord Jesus and he says, my Lord. And my God, when we see Christ truly, we truly see Christ. That is to say, Thomas did not see him just as a risen master. Thomas did not see him just as a good teacher or as a rabbi. But he saw him for who he truly is. My Lord and my God. Possibly no clearer declaration of the divinity of Christ than here in the words of Thomas. And what a proper response after seeing it. And this, this, is a, this is a worshipful response, isn't it? It's a proper response. It's the response we should all have when faced with the truth of the risen Savior. And that is what? Worship. To fall on our knees and to worship Him. Why? Because He's worthy. And for all that Jesus could have rebuked Thomas for, He simply says to him, because you've seen me, you believe. But then He goes on, He says, blessed are those who do not see but believe. You see, Thomas was one who saw Jesus in the flesh. And there's blessing in that. But far greater is the blessing for those who do not see and yet believe. And this isn't the only time in the Scripture we see something like this. Uh, you may remember it being Christmas time and all. Luke chapter 1 is a as a familiar passage to use as an Advent sermon, Kevin Hale, some of you know Kevin Hale, he and Annie are in Conway, he's the minister at Christ Church Conway there. Um, he texted a group of us this past week as he's been preparing to preach from Luke chapter 1, and particularly from that area or that passage where it speaks of Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus, Visiting Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. You may remember that story. Well, Elizabeth's husband, his name was Zechariah. And Zechariah had been struck mute. Why? Well, because Zechariah did not believe the word of the Lord. Remember, Gabriel had come to Zechariah and he didn't believe. And so he's struck mute. Well, Kevin said, I've never noticed this. But do you think when, when Elizabeth was looking at Zechariah, when Mary comes and visits Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is looking at Zechariah and speaking, do you think Elizabeth is looking at Zechariah while, while she's talking to Mary with, with some matrimonial passive aggression type stuff, when she says to Mary, 
Ah, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. As if, Zechariah, you wouldn't be mute had you only believed, but blessed is the one who believed. But isn't that often the norm for us, though? To doubt? To not believe? The author of Hebrews says, the substance, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. All throughout the Gospel of John, one of his themes has been that true seeing is believing, not the other way around. True believing is not seeing, but true seeing is believing. Thomas believed, yes, but he also saw, but great is the blessing for those who see Christ because they believe. That's what John's getting at. Peter writes, though now and though you have not seen him, you love him and though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Have you truly seen Christ because you believe? And are you, as Peter said, experiencing that inexpressible joy? Because though you do not see him now, you believe. You know, John then finishes up this part. He tells us that there's much more that Jesus had not done written in this book. But, but part of John's point here is going, there's a lot more that Jesus did that's not written in this book, but it's almost as if John is going, but isn't this enough? Isn't this enough for you to believe. Isn't this enough to bring you to the point of declaring with Thomas, my Lord and my God? I mean, and, and notice what John says. He says, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Jesus, and here's the part about Jesus the prophet. Jesus has revealed the Father. He has revealed the whole will of God for your salvation. And if you this morning have not come to that point, may this morning be the morning. May this morning be the morning that the scales would fall from your eyes and you say, my Lord and my God. But for those of you who do know the Lord Jesus, if you know Christ, may you also look to Jesus and may you be greatly encouraged and may you rejoice in your living Savior who has brought the forgiveness of sin for you. And may you, as one of his sheep, yearn to go into the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That you scatter from this place, not in fear, but you scatter from this place, having been gathered together to scatter with boldness, to go into the world with the saving message of the gospel of Christ. And then we get to return and we assemble together to be nurtured and encouraged and to be edified in the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ. May you, if you, see, if you know the Lord Jesus already, may your faith be encouraged this morning and you see the one in whom you have placed your hope, that one who has risen from the dead 
and appeared to many. Your faith is not in faith. Your faith is in the risen Lord Jesus. Trust him. Let's pray together, shall we? Our God in heaven, we are thankful for this morning and we're thankful for your word and we're thankful for this passage of scripture where we're encouraged even when we doubt, even when we may be discouraged, we're reminded of the risen Lord Jesus. Encourage us this day, we pray in his name. Amen. The Apostle Paul says to the church at Corinth, for I received from